Thanks for tuning in, everybody. This is JT, and if you are hearing this, you have once again tuned in the Consequence of Habit podcast. Hey, a uh, little little housekeeping. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned a website for the podcast, and it is now up and running. I'm happy to announce that. Please check out consequenceofhabit.com. Uh, from there, you're going to find a uh, place to sign up for the newsletter, where I'll be sending out kind of some short solo episodes. I'm not quite sure if that's going to drive people away from the website or bring them to it. But regardless, that's what's going to be happening there. Uh, also check out the, the the hotline. If you call 252-557-9012 and leave a message of, of, of a habit that's working for you, um, something you think I should be doing on the podcast, I'm, I'm certainly open to feedback. Or if you want to nominate a guest to include yourself, you think there's a story out there that needs to be told on the on the podcast, I would love to hear their name and maybe a, a quick synopsis. All right, moving on. Our next guest, Mr. Dan Jarvis. Dan is a Dan's a veteran. He's a former first responder. And like many people who served, he, he's had his struggles with PTSD. So Dan reached out to the VA for help. And he was, well, he was unimpressed with, with, their, with their response and, and their, their style of treatment. So instead of just sitting back and not doing anything about it, Dan started doing his own research. He started talking to uh, leaders in, in the, the, the field of, of PTSD treatment, and he started a company called 220. 220 uses a neurological treatment that has, has so far had a 100% effective rate. And instead of sitting here and trying to explain this, where I'm about also 100% sure to jack that up, I'm going to let Dan do it. So Without further ado, please welcome Mr. Dan Jarvis. All right, thanks for joining us, everybody. This is JT, and this is the Consequence of Habit podcast. I am here with Dan Jarvis from 220. Dan, I appreciate you taking the time to come on. Hey, JT. I really appreciate the invitation. So... Anyone who's listened to some of the, my prior podcasts knows that that PTSD has been uh, it's been a subject that's come up on multiple podcasts. I like to I like to discuss things with veterans. I like to th- discuss things uh, pertaining to first responders. Um, can you just give us a quick rundown of what twenty two zero is and and who it's helping? Sure. So twenty two zero, I actually started the nonprofit in April of twenty eighteen, and that was after my. I would call failed experience with the Department of Veterans Affairs with their mental health counseling. Um, I fell through their cracks pretty deeply and, and realized that, you know, if I'm going through the cracks, there's a lot of people falling through those cracks. And currently in the U.S., we have about 1.1 million veterans who are diagnosed with PTSD. And that's from all of the wars. And when you look at post 9-11, you know, people don't understand. We, we're sending people to the battlefront today that were not even alive when the towers fell. So our main audience, not only in the veterans population, but it's also uh, law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, uh, corrections officers. We've also incorporated doctors and nurses as a result of the COVID um, epidemic or pandemic. And you know, that's, that's kind of our mission. So if you put a uniform on for a purpose bigger than yourself, that's who we're there for. And we are also there for the families of those members. So, for example, um, if a veteran's got PTSD, there's a pretty good chance that their spouse is struggling with, with, with trauma as well from just that sense of helplessness and not being able to help their, their loved one or even the kids are affected by it. Mm. So that's kind of what our mission is. That's who we're, we're working with. We're, we're now breaking into the research realm. So we're actually expanding research beyond those borders. So we have a, a study that's going to be published. Um, and the, the research is actually on our website. We did 100 client study, mm. um, 30 veterans. We had four active military we had, I think, seven police officers, six firefighters, four nurses, 19 mental health counselors, and 30 civilians. Um, so it was 100 people in, in, in all in all that went through our, our process we call the tactical resiliency process. And that's the intervention for the PTSD. And average scores for that collective body was 54.5. And the way PTSD works and the scale we use was the post-traumatic stress disorder symptom scale interview. And it scores zero to 80. And anything between 20 and 80 is considered clinically 
um, diagnosed as post-traumatic stress. So we have everyone do the evaluation before they go through a process. And then we do 10 to 14 days later, we do another evaluation and we rate their symptoms from the time of the last intervention till that point. So our study went, showed an average of 54 and a half. And then literally the average was two and a quarter after the completion of that study. And that's 100%. So everybody that was in that study, initially the the numbers came in like 98% because a couple people never got back with the therapist to to do the follow-up evaluation, but we were able to capture that data and 100% of those 100 people lost um, their clinical diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. This is a part of the podcast where I talk about Athletic Brewing Company. And I don't mention them almost every single show because they pay me because they do not. Uh, I talk about them because I believe in the company. I believe in what they're doing. And they, uh, they were a huge part of, of my journey. You know, at, at one point in my life, I had to examine my relationship with alcohol and decide that it no longer fit into my life. And I was, I was pretty bummed out about that, uh, especially because I love good beer. I, I would say I loved it a little too much, uh, but I, I enjoyed a really good uh, craft beer. And I'd go to a party and everyone, I would see them all just drink. I mean, those little tops popping off those bottles or those cans cracking away. And I'm sitting there with seltzer water. Come on. That is until now, until I found out, until I found Athletic Brewing Company. Now I get my cake and I eat it too. Uh, So whether you're like me, which means you really like beer, uh, but you don't want the alcohol Maybe you don't drink anymore. Maybe you do drink, but you got something going on tomorrow. I don't know what you got going on. I, who knows? Uh, maybe you got a sporting event. Maybe you got a board meeting. It's really none of my freaking business. But if you want to clear head the next day, uh, do yourself a favor. Get yourself some Athletic Brewing Company. They got some award-winning, and I'm not even joking. I just saw the email. Award-winning beers on there. Use promo code capital COH20 and get yourself 20% off your first order at Athletic Brewing Company. That's capital COH20. Dan, where where is the um, where does the concept come from? You, like you mentioned, I, I fell through the cracks. What are you guys doing different that the VA or somebody else is not doing? Well, the VA does something that they call evidence-based. So they wait for something to be evidence-based. And in order to do that, you're looking at five years of data collection. So for a treatment to be considered evidence-based, it's got to be in practice with evidence supporting it for five years. Well, the, the basis of the work that we do is found in something called neuro-linguistic programming, NLP. Um, if your audience is familiar with that, it's been around since the 1970s. So there's a process called visual and kinesthetic disassociation. And what we did is we went to the root of the NLP work and we basically modeled a process and we kind of basically developed our own. Um, This is all stuff that's in open source. So it's like nothing that's protected or proprietary other than maybe some copyrights. Um, Initially, we met an organization called the Research and Recognition Project And that's when I had my paradigm shifted. So September of 2018, you know, mind you, I started the nonprofit in April because I was really looking for an answer for myself, as well as trying to connect my brothers and sisters that put those uniforms on for alternative treatments. And I find myself in Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, at the very first public training that the Research and Recognition Project did on their process called the Reconsolidation of Traumatic Memories Protocol, or RTM. And literally in 45 minutes, well, I got talked into doing a live demo in front of uh, 25 mental health counselors. So I did, and 45 minutes later, uh, my worldview changed on when it comes to trauma. And that's when, for the first time, that I realized that, you know, we can shut off the fight-or-flight mechanism. And it's through the work that Dr. Burke has done that we ended up modeling what he did is he went into the, the, the early work of the NLP world and created his own process. And then he's done five major studies and there's a, well, let me call it five replication studies. And right now, Walter Reed is comparing his study to prolonged exposure therapy, which is the VA's model for treatment. And what prolonged exposure does 
is it requires you to tell your story from start to end. So as as you do this process, you're basically opening the um, the physici- physiological wounds. You're you're reconnecting. You're you're feeling all the emotions you felt during the event, and that's when I realized, you know. When I fell through the cracks of the VA, it was after they canceled a couple appointments. And the first cancellation, I couldn't get in for four weeks. The second cancellation, I couldn't get in for eight weeks. And that was really my last experience with the VA. So going up to Albuquerque, I I sit down and I go through this process. And you're not required to tell much of the story. You know, they basically get you to have a reaction or a trigger or ab reaction, whatever you want to call it, a sympathetic arousal. um, And then they stop you. And then they set up this process and then you watch yourself disassociated. That's the visual kinesthetic disassociation. So you're watching yourself watch the traumatic event. You're not actually watching the traumatic event. So what we did as a nonprofit is we realized, you know, initially we, we trained some veterans to do the RTM process. Um, but uh, if you're, if you've listened to a lot of stories we found it very challenging for people in the peer world to actually have to sit there and listen to some of the trauma that other people have endured because, you know, maybe, maybe the person you're talking to, maybe it wasn't combat related, you know, maybe it was childhood sexual abuse or a a rape torture or because that you find yourself, you're like, Holy cow, this is a lot to process for you. actually have to hear that. So our process, uh, the tactical resiliency process, we removed all content from it. So now all I got to do is sit down with a veteran and say, okay, we're going to work on, a, uh, on an event in your life that's very traumatic. The key is I don't want you to tell me about it. And that is like an aha moment for a lot of people. What do you mean? You, uh, you don't want me to tell you about it. We're going to set up this process. You're going you're gonna to think about it. All I want you to do is take a minute think about the event in your mind. I don't need to know any of the content. And then we begin the process at that point. And once we see them trigger or have that sympathetic arousal, we stop them and we reground them. And at that point, there's literally a four to six hour window where you can run this process and get the same effect where you're basically resetting the emotional state of the event. So a trauma occurs, like for example, we'll use one of my combat stories. Uh, August 19th, one of my kids was killed in Afghanistan, and I felt responsible for his death. Uh, for me, it was extremely traumatic, and like literally the, the, the down to the second is seared into my brain. I knew exactly what time it was. I knew where I was, and literally every month of August since Doug died was a horrendous month for me. It was, it was a, the whole month was a trigger, and when I knew that this was really successful, was the the year after I went through the process. So September 2018, circles back around, and all of a sudden we're on August 21st, and I look at my Facebook feed and I see all these posts that people are making about Doug, and I'm like, holy cow, I missed the anniversary of it. Not only did I miss the anniversary, I missed the lead up to August. I missed that first of August that all the stuff that I would experience was gone. Uh, So like you're talking about habits. Um, PTSD is a habit. And that's what a lot of people don't really understand. So you're exposed to a traumatic event and then an emotion attaches to it. And if you don't process those emotions, whether it be not hitting your REM sleep cycle or you're self-medicating, not hitting your REM sleep cycle, those habits become regular. So what I did is, you know, Afghanistan, I was injured. I had seven of my guys injured. One of my guys was killed. Um, at the end of my deployment, my mom died. And when I stepped on my pressure plate, I detonated an IED that was about five feet away on a dismounted patrol. I was, I was literally a zombie from that point forward because I didn't sleep. Mm. Every time I shut my eyes, I'd hear that explosion. And then that just kind of became a habit for me. Then I stayed awake. Um, and when my mom passed, I had to go home about three weeks early. And I find myself in back in Alaska after the funeral because I was stationed at Fort Wainwright, um, I was still sleep deprived. So the first thing I did is I went to a class six store, which is like a liquor store on right, base. Right. I go get a case of beer. Holy cow, I have seven, eight, nine, ten 10 beers, and now I'm sleeping. And then that became my habit. And then that became my habit that played out pretty regularly. 
Uh, I didn't like time off from work. I didn't like um, downtime because that's when, you know, everything would just kind of come back. As long as I stayed busy and stayed occupied, you know, life seemed to be manageable. And, and for me, it was March of 2013. I was sitting there in my bedroom and I was like, I was done. I was, it was exhausted. Um, the nightmares were just so bad. The night sweats, the night terrors, you know, that regular sense of disruption in your sleep cycle and your personal life, um, emotional life. Um, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. So I'm literally looking at a barrel of a rifle uh, March 2nd and the reason why the date sticks in mind is two things happened. One, the kids that lived in the apartment above me kind of really brought me out of that moment because a high power rifle would have went right through the floor. I didn't want to hurt another kid. So I, you know, I, I went to sleep like every other night and I get a phone call the next day. Um, and my driver, Ryan was like, Hey, Sergeant Jarvis, did you hear about Corey? And anybody who knows anything about military, if you hear something like that, it's not good. Right. It's either, Somebody is dead or somebody's in jail. Yeah. I was like, nobody, what happened? Corey shot and killed himself last night. So Corey was 22 years old. We, we'd not even been home a full year. Uh, he was a dad. Nobody knew he was even struggling, and he kills himself. So I always say that, you know, Corey saved my life. Unfortunately, it was when he took his own. Uh, just seeing how the men uh, were affected by it, I realized yeah, I, I can't, I can't go out this way. I can't give permission to one of the guys that I really care about, you know, that I've spent time, you know, downrange with. Um, so I just continue to fight it. And then I got, I got medically retired. Um, and I came home from service, um, retired up September 11, 2014. And now I had the uniform taken off. So now I'm looking for purpose again. So, you know, I, I realized, you know, you got to get your, I got to get my spiritual life in order. I got to get my physical life, my emotional life. There's a lot of things I was, I was wanting to take care of because nothing changed. You know, I'm still drinking. I'm still eating like crap. I'm still not physically active. And, you know, and I'm, I'm actually isolated at this point. And I, I realized, okay, I've got to make some changes. So I started, you know, getting my spiritual life back in order. I started going back to the gym, trying to get physically fit. I'm trying to do all of these things, but it's still a struggle. Um, and then I ended up putting the uniform back on in law enforcement. So I went back into a law enforcement capacity and I felt normal again. And when I say normal, your brain elevate is elevated in a different state when you're working, you know, with whether you're a police officer or firefighter, or if you're in combat, you're, you're operating in the fight or flight. So every day my brain is act, actually acting the way it's supposed to in the job. So I felt like, okay, at least this feels normal. And I ended up meeting my wife. We got married. And um, after about two years back in law enforcement uh, in Florida, I, I decided that, you know, I needed to pursue other avenues. I uh, had a lot of back pain, a lot of back issues from um, injuries that sustained overseas. And when I took the uniform back off, that's when the whole vicious cycle started all over again. And it's like, I mean, we were talking nightmares started coming back with a vengeance. It's like, where is this stuff coming from? Um, but the problem is when we don't process trauma, it stays readily accessible. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with PTSD, but what happens is you're exposed to an event, an emotional, emotional connection occurs and attaches to the event. When it's not processed, that emotion and the memory will stay in your amygdala which is your fight or flight mechanism of your brain. And as it stays in your amygdala, I kind of, a, I kind of a compare it to a thumb drive. You have easy access to it. So you have nightmares, you have intrusive thoughts, you have flashbacks, you have all the things um, that that memory, you know, what you experienced at the time is e easily accessible. And that's why we're doing all these things, nightmares, flashbacks, intrusive thoughts, uh, night terrors, night sweats, you know, because our whole body physiology is off. So when you get to that point, you know, your cortisol levels are extremely high right. and then you're dealing with, you know, I'm also now a type two diabetic, you know, and that's something that's linked to high levels of cortisol. And then you have, you know, in the, especially in the first responder world, you know, a lot of your cops and firefighters are dying from heart attacks and strokes yes. and cancers, all those things where your body is totally in disease, it's out of whack. It's out of that normal homeostasis. 
And, and now we're at a point where we have d- data to support what we're doing that people don't have to live in a traumatized state. Uh, you don't have to feel the emotion to heal. You know, um, traditional mental health is, well, let's just talk about it. And when you're dealing with those habits, all those traumas are stored on the subconscious level. So that's literally the 95% of your brain is in control. That's that's what we call the smart brain or, a, or the strong brain. And then your weak brain is your conscious. And that's us talking having that, you know, five to 10% of brain capacity, you know, it's kind of like if we're doing talk therapy, you're never getting below the surface. You're never getting to that subconscious uh, event. So the process that we do works at the root of the event in the subconscious, but you're consciously aware of it. So uh, I'm sorry to cut you off. So I just want to make sure I'm understanding. So the way the VA does it or, or some traditional uh, therapy and you're talking through it, is the idea of that is it's almost like a, a like a stress inoculation like you've said it enough times to where it's not bothering you but but you, what you're saying is that's not necessarily that doesn't work right for some people it may work um, but what we, what we find is repetitively discussing your trauma and the hope they say is to desensitize you to the event right to say it enough times that it doesn't have the the level of intensity but what ends up happening is the brain is like a computer. It's a deletion and distortion device. A lot of the stories that veterans are being um, stuck with are not necessarily the true reality of what they experienced, Mm. but their brain has either suppressed, deleted, or distorted the data. Um, We had an active duty Air Force veteran that we got uh, treated and trained, and he was stuck with, uh, how, how did he describe it? that he had polls that he would tell a story from start to end and he could tell that story, but that was it. And then when we cleared the trauma he was able to tell the story, it was nothing like the story that he'd been telling himself for the last 10 years. I was like, dude, I don't know if you're listening to that right now, but that's kind of badass. That's not what you were telling everybody, but he was stuck with a different narrative and yeah, it's 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 pretty cool. Yeah, so that's almost like somebody who's witnessed something. I, I mean, it's almost the same, right? And then the police are going to go ahead and they're going to interview them. And you can't always rely on your memory because once you start getting into, like you said, your fight or flight, there's a right. chemical process. You, you know, you start having like auditory disclu- uh, exclusion, tunnel vision, and you don't you don't really know. I mean, that's just like you ask a fireman or a police officer about details. You ask a, a soldier, hey, how many times did you shoot? They could right. have no idea. Memory is is pretty funky that way. Um, so when you talk about they disassociate themselves from the, how does how does that work? Because I mean, I listened to uh, like a, a testimonial of of a couple that was on your website, and they're talking about starting treatment, and they were skeptical. I'll say yeah. uh, on on how it was going to be because it, from from the sounds of it. Now uh, the website didn't go into it that I saw that. They, they may not seem like a traditional style of, of, of therapy. Explain how somebody can do that, how, how they can disassociate themselves from the event. Okay. So what happens is when you get that, that sympathetic arousal, that trigger, when you have them think about it, or even if they're talking about it, you know, when your blood pressure changes, your breathing changes, you start sweating. Right. That is when the emotional state is vulnerable to changing. So the treatment, what you're doing is you're literally – having them create an image in their mind where they were safe before the event. And what were you doing before the event where you were safe and everything was good? And then you have them drain the color from that image. So you make a mental picture, a still picture, and then you have them do the same thing on the back end after the event. So what you're doing is you're telling, you're speaking to their subconscious. Okay, wait a minute, black and white picture. What does that mean? What does a black and white movie look like? Old movie. All right, picture at the beginning and a picture at the end. Okay, wait a minute. There's a beginning to the trauma and there's an end to it. So you're talking to the subconscious on a level that we don't consciously fully understand. So the brain knows that, hey, that's an old image. That's black and white. That's in the past. There's a beginning, there's an end. And then what you do is you have them, you know, maybe, you know, maybe your living room, you have a, a TV on your wall and you have them go in their mind, sit down on that TV and take that first image and put it up on the, on the TV. And then when you get them to do that, and the the black and white image is up on the TV, then you have them separate from their body. So in other words, stay physically seated, 
but go stand in the doorway where you can't see the TV. You can only see yourself. And all you're trying to do is keep their conscious brain busy enough that the unconscious brain does the work. So, for example, you run this movie once. All right, how are you on the couch? Well, I was really amped up because I knew what was about to happen. Okay, well, here's a cool thing. It's your movie. You're in control. Take that remote. Turn the TV off. Turn the volume off. Just let the DVD play in the background. And then they, they realize, the conscious brain realizes, okay, they're now relaxed. All you got to do is get them relaxed on the couch and relaxed in the doorway. And then you go to the end where you do the rapid rewind. And the rewind is you jump in, associate to the last part of the movie at the end, and you play it backwards to the beginning in color. So again, you're telling the brain you're going to the older to the newer, but you're actually going in reverse. So it's tricking the amygdala into realizing, oh, wait a minute, this event started on the positive good. And that's when the emotion separates. And the emotion goes to the hippocampal region of the brain. The memory itself goes to the cerebellum and the two don't meet ever again. And then you have your sleep cycle. So for example, one of my former lieutenants, his um, girlfriend, we got treated yesterday. She had a lot of lot of early on trauma. It was pretty, pretty horrific. So she does the process with Dr. Janelle Royster. She's on my, on my board of directors. She's an air force vet. And when I checked back in today, um, my LT said, yeah, it was crazy. She slept for 14 straight hours without her medication. Wow. So she went into that parasympathetic. She went out of fight or flight and her body was like, thank you, Lord, for the break. And now she'll reconsolidate all those memories and then they'll be processed. So now she won't need to take sleep medication and she'll be able to, she'll be able to tell you her story if she so chose to, like she was reading a recipe without the visceral emotional attachment to it. And that's what's really, really cool is when you see the person, they're traumatized, and then you see the reaction when they go parasympathetic uh, a lot of them, you'll see them, they'll yawn. You know, they're, they just get really tired, really exhausted. And that's when you know their amygdala has officially gone back to the normal position. And then they're able to sleep and they're able to reconsolidate. And that's just, that's just one process with trauma. You know, we've developed another process called the emotions management process where you can literally go back to the root cause of the initial onset of a negative emotion, like say anger or fear find where they first felt that you get them to associate it. You have them rate the level of intensity to it. And then again, you do a disassociation process and then you have them reframe it. Um, majority of them we find go back below seven years of age. So they're in that imprint phase of learning. So maybe they were angry at the age of five and that stayed in their subconscious. That became their, their habit throughout life. And they're constantly reacting the way they would when they're five years old. Yeah. And we're seeing them release the emotions because they're now giving themselves a new set of learnings based on their current level of understanding. And then the emotion is gone and then they react differently. So they don't have the triggers um, or anger reactions or fear reactions or shame reactions that they would have in the past. Yeah. I, I, I love the fact that we t you're talking about the stigma of things because, um, you know, coming from the military, I, I'm a veteran myself I understand that that you know pre pre nine eleven, um, you know th this this talking about your emotions was not it was not a thing. You go back to your coping mechanism of drinking, uh, right. the VA. The VA uh, although I think their intentions are correct, it's 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 government bureaucracy. It's slow moving. Yeah. Um, they think there's a blanket answer for everything, and unfortunately, that right now includes mostly pharmaceuticals. Right. Uh, and then you, 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 you go back to talking about being a kid and, and how much of your own defense mechanisms and blueprints that are made up during those times. Uh, I, I mean, I just listened to somebody recently, I think I mentioned on a, a previous podcast of, uh, of a method of writing a letter to like that five-year-old or that seven-year-old going, Hey, listen, you did what you had to do at the time. And, 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 and I appreciate it, but it's not serving me now as an adult. And just this guy saying it like brought tears to my eyes because you because yeah. you think about yourself and you think about everything. Everyone's gone through stuff, and it's really it 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 shapes on how we react to these things. And, and for a lot of people, that might be okay. 
But when you start adding super stressful things like, like combat, like a fireman that, you know, I've had on here, they're, you know, they're pulling, I mean, I, you know, you wouldn't have to go into detail, but they know they're doing really hard, hard things and we just don't have the tools to deal with it. Uh, yeah. The, the, the crazy thing is when I started, I did my first session in, in 2018, well, like anybody, we've got a lot more than one thing, especially, I mean, I spent 27 months in the Middle East, you know, 15 months in Iraq, 12 months in Afghanistan. I spent at that time, like four and a half years in law enforcement prior to that. But the worst stuff that I had to process was childhood stuff. Yeah. I was 11, right? Yeah. And people don't understand that we get a, we're getting a lot more, we're seeing veterans and first responders, they tend to gravitate towards professions where they want to really help people because of things that they've experienced, but that's opening themselves up to compounding the effects of trauma. Yeah. So when you can take somebody with complex PTSD with maybe a 20 year history of trauma and in literally five sessions, wipe it all out, you know, you're giving people an entire new look. They're seeing the world through a new lens. Um, and the best thing I can equate the process to is a pattern interrupt you're interrupting a negative pattern and you're giving them a way to look at things differently. And as you teach the brain, these new skills, your brain will start doing the stuff automatically. And it typically will happen when they go to sleep because the brain's like, Oh cool. This is a new thing. All right, let me do this. Let me process this. And it just separate, separate, severs the emotion from the memories, you know, and we even had one, one girl who was dropped in the Philippines. She was an army vet. Um, and she had a lot of early childhood trauma. And once we cleared her trauma, she literally woke up with the ability to speak the Filipino dialect that she hadn't spoken in 35 years. She ought to, all of a sudden remembered it. Oh, you know, that's, that's the power of the brain. She literally distorted, she deleted that part of her life. And then she got rid of the trauma and she's, she's going through her sleep cycle. And she said it was like she saw pictures of every single one of her traumas except now there was no intense emotions associated with it, which was the brain literally filing the, the memories into the different parts of the brain that it's supposed to go to. And I mean, it's like, it's just incredible. Yeah, it's, it's, it's humbling to be a part of this. Are you guys using this as, as like a, like a, a like a critical incident response thing where, where you're preemptive in doing it before the, somebody might be showing some uh, symptoms or signs or, or, or self-medicating? Yeah. So as right now we have seven active law enforcement officers that are trained to do it. And we have a couple firefighters. Um, once we get through this whole election cycle, uh, Sheriff Dennis Lima over in Seminole County, we're going to partner with their peer support team and we're going to train a, probably a 30 to 40 person peer support group. Awesome. Uh, we, Auburndale police department trained three of their officers. Um, we're getting into the active first responder world because the intervention can be done just as you said, it can be done as a preemption. It doesn't have, you don't have to wait 31 days for it to be classified as post-traumatic stress. You can intervene. We had a, um, one of our coaches in Knoxville, Tennessee, worked with a, a police officer that was involved in a shooting. Um, and within 18 hours, she was able to disconnect the emotion to the, to the event. So when he thinks about it, that 10 on that zero to 10 scale, was able to get down to a zero within a day and a half of the event, which means it'll never manifest into a problem long-term because those emotions won't be uh, attached. Those, the, the consequence of that habit won't be established. Um, and that same uh, peer coach, mom just got out of the hospital, was diagnosed with COVID, had um, pneumonia, and literally came home and was scared to death to go to sleep because she felt she wasn't going to wake up. So she texted me this morning and says, Hey, I ran my mother through this. She's sleeping like a baby right now. Amazing. So you're, you're seeing those 10 stress reactions dropping to zeros and ones within, I think the fastest I've ever done a session is 22 minutes. Wow. Um, but most of them probably 45 minutes to an hour on the first session. So they get the visual formats, right? Cause that's one of the things that we have them do is we have them practice their, their, movie their neutral movie with a neutral event so that we make sure they're not watching the event so yeah, it's it's pretty cool yeah it's got to be supported on on both sides of the, the political house just because you know if you take law enforcement itself if you're in law enforcement obviously you want your brothers and your sisters and this goes military fire department 
across the board. I'm, I'm just using law enforcement because they've been in the media so much. Right. And we talk, it, it should be an integral part of training because what people don't realize when, when, when police officers are dealing with these high stress things every day, day in and day out, uh, and then they start self-medicating, they're not sleeping. They're living in, in fear. They may not show it, but these things all, they're, they're relevant in how they perform their job. So I, I think this stuff is, it's crazy important. It should almost be like a, like a concussion protocol like the NFL. If you're right. involved in an incident, there has to be something, whether you like it or not, at least start this process. Because a lot of people, they don't have the emotional awareness to even know that they're fucked up. Or they're yeah. not, I shouldn't use that word, that they're struggling because that's really what it is. It's a, it's a, it's a struggle. So, um, has, has the VA looked into this at all? Well, the VA is doing a major study right now with the reconsolidation of traumatic memories protocol. And that's, that's what I initially went through. So they are doing a study comparing it to their prolonged exposure up at Walter Reed. Uh, that study will be published in, I believe it's September of 2021, uh, from my understanding, the work has already been done, but the way research is, they got to pull every penny out of it. So, yeah, yeah, uh, September yeah. 2021, it'll get it'll get published, and at that point, there'll be hard data from Walter Reed that says this process works. And but then again, at that point, even though the VA funded the study, they still want that evidence-based attachment, so they could wait for three, four more years before they allow it, mm. which is really crazy because. Prolonged exposure, which is the, what they refer to as their, their gold seal standard, it's like 12 to 14 weeks, uh, and you're working on the same event. So, But the RTM protocol, or what we're doing, you could literally do between one and five sessions, and you can wipe out all of the negative emotions associated with all of the traumatic events. Wow. Because once the brain reconsolidates and it learns that skill, it'll literally go through multiple events. You know, my, my driver from Afghanistan, Ryan, who gave me that call, um, we did a session over the 4th of July. He came down to Florida to visit and he had that reaction where he's yawning, but it was his firefighter um, profession that caused the biggest trauma for him. And he had about, he said he had about four or five traumatic events. So I said, well, let's get the big one because if you get that boulder of an event, and a lot, a lot of times it'll take, multiple other events with it. So we cleared that traumatic event. We, we got him from a 10 to a zero. He's gone parasympathetic. He's yawning. And I said, okay, now that we're done, I want you to think about all of the other events that we were going to work on. On a scale of zero to 10 with zero, no negative emotions and 10 highly intense. Where are you on all those other ones? He was zeros on all of them. Wow. So we did one session and cleared like four or five traumatic events from one session because we got, we isolated the really, really big one. Everything links together. So they're neurologically connecting. A five-year-old event happens. It connects to a 10-year-old event. A 10-year-old event connects to a 22-year-old event. And then all of a sudden you got a boulder and they're all linked to this big, huge event, all linked back to that first five-year-old event. So with complex trauma, you get that really big one and that first one, and that literally will unravel the entire web of neurological connections between the emotions and the events. Yeah, on the website you said this is this is not as much psychological as it is neurological. Is correct. Correct. Um, have you found any other treatments that 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 can go along with this? I, I just know in the world of, of PTSD, there's there's all kinds of new things. You're seeing now some states are, are legalizing things like uh, uh, psychedelics. There's a lot of veterans now that have been looking into these things. Is this in itself, really, I guess I should go back to you, what is the rate of effectiveness um, in, in the treatment that you're doing? And do you see other things that, that, uh, that, that work in conjunction with it? Well, I th I'm not a big proponent of drugs, but I think a lot of that just comes from my law enforcement background. Right. But, you know, whatever works for somebody, I would never stand in the way. And the reason these psychedelics are effective is because it goes subconscious. Mm. It's way below the conscious level. Um, I, the effectiveness on as far as what we're seeing, I've yet to have a failure of, of a session. Yeah, so I've that. probably worked with, I want to say close to 75 people, just myself, since we started doing the peer coaching. 
and all of them have let go of their PTSD or, you know, and, and even with the emotions management process, um, we're seeing the other end of the spectrum, anger, sadness, fear, shame, hurt, guilt, same thing. You know, you're seeing them neurologically disconnect the emotions. Um, so I'm even, I'm probably doing more EMP now than, than the TRP because it affects more people. Everybody's got negative emotions. Yeah. Yeah. We, we just don't know where they, they first start. And then, but we have pretty good ways of isolating where they first start. And then all it is, is a framing of the, of the, what happened. Yeah. And they just look at it a little bit differently. And then they actually, they feel totally different towards the event. They're not thinking about it like a five-year-old anymore. They're thinking about it like a 50 year old because now they've told themselves at the age of five, Hey, you don't have to feel this way. You can, you can look at this. Yeah. And then the brain as a little pivot and you have a, a pattern change on how they view that initial emotion. Yeah. I, you know, I just actually lost my, my train of thought. I, I had something very specific. Oh, this is it. So you talk about, you know, when the, when the words PTSD first or the acronym first came out, it was always associated with, with military. And obviously that jump to law enforcement, to, to firefighting um, <clears throat> makes complete sense. But uh, a, a traumatic incident is, it's not like they've got the monopoly on it. So is this a treatment that you're seeing is, is working just as well on, on the civilian side um, of the house? Yeah. So the, the study we did, we wanted to make sure we, we, we included data from other subset groups. Um, we had 30 civilians involved in the study. We also had a group of mental health counselors and the success rate was equal across the board. It wasn't, you know, it, it, because there again, it's not the visual that's the problem. So it's not me seeing my buddy blow up, you know, next to an IED. It's it's how I feel about it. It's the feeling that's the problem. So you're able to disconnect the feeling. So now I can still, I can talk about it, but I don't have that visceral emotional reaction to the event. So we've seen it with rape trauma. We've seen it with child abuse. We've seen it with car crashes. Um, you know, we've seen it with uh, the diagnosis of a catastrophic mental health or a, me a catastrophic medical condition, whether it's a terminal diagnosis. Um, the youngest that has gone through the, the no content process successfully is four years old. Wow. So it's worked with children. Uh, the oldest that's gone through our process is 103. <laughs> so we have a, a wide range of, of, of applications for it. Amazing. So uh, clinically, in the United States, there's literally between 9 and 11 million people diagnosed with PTSD. All right. A million of them are vets. Very few are first responders because we they won't go seek the help to get the diagnosis. Um, but the, the bulk of it is civilian population. It could be a traffic crash. Yeah. It could be a home invasion. It could be a burglary to your home where you get this total sense of helplessness. You know, it's, it's got nothing to do with what they're saying. It's got to do with what they're feeling. So, it, yeah, it, absolutely. It, we wanted to make sure that the civilian population knows that this is just as successful. Yes, it was. We developed it for that veteran first responder world, but it's growing to much more than that. This is just a guess, but I imagine. So you, you start off working with veterans and first responders. There's got to be something about having the street cred with those people, being a veteran yourself, even yeah. open enough to say, hey, I was struggling. I was drinking too much. I wasn't sleeping. Um, that's got to make it easier for people coming in with that background to open up. I know when you talk about first responders not seeking the help, I'm going to guess most of the time is because they're afraid of losing their job or not yes. being able to work for a period of time. Uh, you talk to somebody in the military – they, a lot of them have security clearance. And if one, you, know, you start going in and saying, I'm having problems, I'm drinking too much, man, that security clearance is going to be, it's in jeopardy. So, so that's definitely a, some, it's, it's an obstacle that needs to be tackled. Um, do you, when you're dealing with somebody, say a rape victim or somebody else, do you bring in other people that maybe have gone through these things to, just to help the, the people open up a little bit or not necessarily? Um, not necessarily. It, the, the power of the story compels people to, to move to action. You know, for example, me and you having a conversation, the most important part of the entire process is rapport between the two people. Because if we connect on a human level, oh, I get this guy. Yeah. He's walked in my shoes. I, I know what that was like. 
that's what will get them to trust you enough to do the process because you can tell them all day long that this will work. And I mean, I've had vets that, you know, were unable to develop the rapport. They would shut it down. They wanted nothing to do with it. Well, first of all, they don't believe that it's, it's even possible. Uh, But if you can get them to do it, whether they believe in the process or not is irrelevant. It's kind of like, if you go to our website, Sean, you know, initially he's like, yeah, dude, I think you're full of shit. Yeah. It was exactly, I picked him up at the airport. I, I really stopped explaining the process to a lot of people because that was the reaction. Yeah. You're, you're full of it. You know, if this thing works the way you say it works, I'll get 220 tattooed on my ass. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, and then four days later he's chuckles and says, Hey man, I think I need your logo, you know, <laughs> because he trusted enough to do the process. He did it. The work was done. He was able to resolve the PTSD part. Now, the, going back to the stigma, all right, the, the, the problem with PTSD is the D and the end of it. All right. That's the first thing that I thought of when they told me I had post-traumatic stress disorder was now I felt like I was defective, disordered. There's a problem with me. The good thing is uh, the 2022 Diagnostic uh, and Statistical Manual version six is going to come out and organizations like Dr. Burke with the Research and Recognition Project are doing everything they can because they're trying to remove the disorder part about it and reclassify it to an injury. So they're going to remove it as a psychological disorder and it's going to be reclassified to a neurological disorder, Perfect. Um, which with that automatically is going to destigmatize the process because then, then you're like, okay, if it's neurological, we can fix it. If it's an injury, we can fix it. If you break your arm, what are you going to do? You're going to put a cast on it. So if we reclassify it to an injury, I think more people are going to be subject to actually saying, okay, let me do this. Um, And I think too, as we move forward in the first responder realm and we start seeing the successes in that world, because the really cool part about the training is you got to work on your own stuff in the training. That's the big, that's the aha that holy cow, this really does work. So Seminole County, um, Sheriff Lima is on the first lady of Florida's task force to prevent first responder suicide, uh, we will then basically in a, in a bow present that, Hey, this is your, this is a way for you to move forward within the first responder realm. Oh, and by the way, what would it look like if your police officers no longer had anger reactions or fear reactions the way they normally had? What does that look like? Not only for the officer and his family, what does it look like for the citizen interaction? Um, you know, it's kind of like that, like energy attracts. So when you have anger and you put it out there, it comes right back. So if a police officer doesn't have the same reaction to anger that they had before, because they have new subconscious learnings, you can diffuse it. You know, what does that mean for society? You know, if you clear fear from a police officer where they don't have that overwhelming sense of something's really bad is about to happen, a cell phone that comes out of a pocket, guess what it's going to look like? It's going to look like a cell phone. It's not going to look like a black object that could be a gun. Your brain will see things differently. So these are some pretty exciting things um, that I think will play out in the near future. Uh, We definitely could use it nationally. Um, 100%. You know, I talked to people and and I had a family member. Uh, They were, they were watching a video of uh, or describing a video of a police officer's reaction and go, well, hey, why did they do this? Why, why, why didn't they just shoot him in his leg? Or why? And, and to explain to somebody what a body goes through when it's in a fight or flight, and these things build on each other. If you're bringing, if you're bringing in that baggage from a bunch of other incidents, and, and you start going to that lizard brain of, of trying to figure out what you're supposed to do and trying to keep yourself alive, man, you are truly operating at the most basic level and you, you know, like, so that's a, t- that's a tough conversation to have with people that don't know about these things. But mm-hmm. if, if, if it's wrapped in the package of this is going to help police officers respond in a way that, that it's beneficial for everybody, then, then I, I can't see how, how it's, a, how anyone couldn't be open to the idea. It just seems crazy to me. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is crazy, especially when you're looking at the national media attention, you know, the the Chauvin guy up in Minneapolis, you know, what was this guy's history? You know, as far as like, what kind of trauma was he experiencing or exposed to? Um, A friend of mine was a deputy locally, we got him trained to do this process. And he was traumatized from an event that occurred at work, where his, you know, 
one of his friends and his sergeants literally died in his arms, um, was just killed in a freak accident. And that sense of helplessness is, is what really the emotion that stuck with him, which is a PTSD reaction. And, you know, he said after that event, his use of force um, events escalated Oh yeah, because his brain is now fight or flight. All right. It's really in the fight. It has, you're going, like you said, total basic. And it really stems back to, Hey, there's a saber tooth tiger over there. It's time to fight, run or freeze. And the problem with law enforcement is you can't freeze and you can't run. Yeah. So it's always the fight. Yep. Um, so to be able to reframe that on a subconscious level where the reactions are different, that is powerful. Yeah. 100%. Uh, so if somebody wants to, to look into this more, if there's, we have a lot of first responders that listen to the podcast also, um, if they want their organization to, to at least look into this, uh, uh, Dan, how do they go ahead and do that? Well, they can go to our website if they want to look at actually some of the research data uh, or some of the testimonials, www.22zero.org. Um, they can send me an email to dan at 220.org or they can contact me at 863-221-6304. That's my mobile number. Um, it's the same number I put on the website. So um, feel free to give me a call. We can always set up a meeting. We have a research team, psychologists, that are actually collecting the data for us. Um, so we can connect them with resources. And if you have first responders that are listening, our, our services are free to first responders as well as their families. Awesome. So husband, wife, children. Mm. You know, we've got the children we would use our licensed professionals to work with because their dynamic is a little different. Um, but, you know, a husband and wife, we can send to another peer coach. You know, if you have, um, you know, if you're in Florida and you don't want anybody in Florida to know, I got a police officer in Iowa. I got a police officer in Vermont. I got a couple out in Utah. Um, we can connect them and the work can be done remotely. You don't have to be in person. So Zoom, FaceTime, um, Facebook video messenger, whatever it is, as long as they can see the person, they can run the process. Yeah. And, and there's no paper trail. Dan, keep on doing what you're doing, man. This is awesome work. It's really, Appreciate yeah, I'm excited to see how it grows and, and the people that are able to take advantage of it. And, and I keep my fingers crossed it, uh, that the, the, the VA gets, gets it together and starts getting on board with this. Well, if the VA gets it together, my life will get a lot easier because <laughs> our whole, our whole objective is to become an irrelevant organization. Yeah. We don't want to exist. Yeah. yeah. So. Cool. Awesome. Dan. Hey, listen, I appreciate you taking the time to get on here and talk about it. Um, if you have anything else you want, you want to get out, please reach out to us. This, this, this venue is always open for you. And, uh, that's it, man. JT, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks. All right. That's a wrap. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to everyone from 220 for what they're doing. It is, uh, it's important work. So check those guys out. If you know anyone who is struggling with PTSD, if you yourself are dealing with PTSD, uh, please check these guys out, look them up. Um, from everything I've seen, it's, it's really changing people's lives. So, and thank you all for listening. Please share this thing. If anyone can pass this thing on, I mean, word of mouth seems to be the only way this, this, this podcast, uh, seems to, seems to be picking up traction. So if anyone could do that, it would be greatly appreciated. And with that, I am out. I will see you next week.